Today's episode is brought to you by Kristen Arnett's Mostly Dead Things, available now from Tin House Books. Karen Russell calls it a love letter to Florida and a family, to half-lit swamps and the 7-Eleven, and to the beasts that only pretend to hold their poses inside us. And Alexander Chi says, There's a gunslinger cool to every sentence, like someone is telling you the last story they'll ever tell you. And just today, Powell Sagal in the New York Times says of Mostly Dead Things, This book is the song of my summer. Grab a copy of Mostly Dead Things at your local independent bookstore or at powells.com, or become a patron of Between the Covers, where Mostly Dead Things is the featured Tin House new release. Patrons receive emails from me with each episode launch and can choose among a variety of patron gifts, from access to bonus audio from each episode, such as today's guest, Sofia Shalmayev, reading from her work in progress called I Married the Butcher to Get to the Bone, to becoming an early Tin House reader, receiving advanced reader copies of 12 Tin House books over the course of a year. You can check this all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. I had no idea how to write a novel. Did I didn't know if it would ever come to fruition? Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer and visual artist Sofia Shalmiev. Shalmiev is a graduate of the MFA program in creative writing at Portland State University and has a master's degree in creative art therapy from the School of Visual Arts in New York City, with which she previously counseled survivors of domestic violence and human trafficking. Shalmiev's writing has appeared in Entropy, Electric Literature, The Seattle Review of Books, Vela Magazine, The Literary Review, and elsewhere. She's here today to talk about her debut memoir, Out from Simon & Schuster, entitled Mother Winter. Kirkus, in its starred review, calls Mother Winter as intellectually satisfying as it is artistically profound. Michelle T. says, The coldness of Russia, of the occult, the heat of punk rock, of motherhood, the psychic tear of emigration and motherlessness, a past gone into mystery. With sparse poetic language, Shalmiyev builds a personal history that is fractured and raw, a brilliant, lovely ache. Eileen Miles adds, the flickering alcoholic parent creates a writer by their absence, 
The kid colors the void, packs it with stuff, a life, and a love, and thus she lives. Mother Winter, Sophia Shalmyev's catastrophically bright, wavering motion of a memoir, forged through sticky clouds of pain, is vividly awesome and truly great. Finally, Lainey Zumas says, When she leaves her native Russia at age 11, Sophia Shalmyev is forced to abandon a mother she may never see again. Mother Winter is the wrenching story of her exile and grief, but it's also a chronicle of awakening to art, sex, feminism, and the rich complexities of becoming a mother herself. Like a punk rock Marguerite Duras, Shalmyev has reinvented the language of longing. I love this gorgeous, gutting, unforgettable book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sophia Shalmyev. Thank you for having me, David. <laughs> uh, so y- you often hear from writing teachers that the seeds of everything in a book should be contained in its opening. And in, a, in, in the case of Mother Winter, I feel like this is particularly true. So I wanted to talk about how the book opens, particularly how you twin questions of language with the arrival from Russia without your mother and the arrival of your period as you begin to practice your American accent. So, so the way the book opens is with a line that Russian sentences begin backwards and that the language of the Old Testament, the book that isn't the good book, mm-hmm. is also backwards. And this first line does a lot of work in shaping your expectations mm-hmm. or our expectations as you start to engage with the United States in a language that's flowing in an opposite direction. But talk to us about pairing this with your getting your, your first period and with your daughter, um, teaching your daughter to wipe, not backwards, but front to back. Because for me, this twinning of language with the woman's body feels mm-hmm. like it's a crucial beginning and opening to the book that goes throughout the entire book. Yeah, that is so true. I, I with the help of my editor, Zach Knoll, um, got the idea that we need to set the reader up for what's to come. Um, in the beginning, the first line was girl is a four letter word. That's a line that's saved later down the line. Um, because I uh, felt like it was really important for me to say that, you know, F U C K is, you know, the same as G I R L. Um, like I'm screwed. I'm a girl. But then we thought about it and we're like, well, that's not really what we're trying to tell the reader. What we're trying to tell the reader is this. We are going to be going down the drain together. We are not going to have any answers because we also say that right from the from the get go. And we're going to be talking about the body a lot. In fact, I think I talk about this uh, in other instances. I, I emailed my editor and I said, how much can I talk about the body? Like how, you know, like I called it vaginal discourse. And, uh, you know, he, he was like, well, don't be unreasonable. And I was like, oh God, what's unreasonable? Um, so it was important for me to include my daughter and my mother and myself in all the fluids, you know, the, every fluid. Um, and really I think the book also sets you up to understand that this is a language of deep deprivation, and kind of um, 
the only thing that I have left of my mother is watching my daughter be this like rebellious being that I also am. Um, and so it was really important for me to say like my daughter Franny, and she's still like that in, in, in real life. She's very much like me, but I don't get to say, I don't get to ask, am I very much like my mother? Um, so when I get my period and there's really no assistance from my mother around it, at least I get to be there for my daughter, you know, unless I, I die tragically. Um, uh, for anything that she needs and my daughter rejects me and she safely gets to reject me which is great which is like sort of part of what you know this object really because the book is really written through a lot of very Kleinian um, like Melanie Klein and Margaret Mahler like object relations theory the idea that I get to stay and be this consistent constant object like a place for my daughter to, to put her frustration into but I didn't get a chance to do that so where am I even getting the um, the wherewithal to be there for her well that felt felt like one of the backwards things on the first page so we get the that the language that you spoke growing up and then the language that you're learning is your dad puts you in a yeshiva mm-hmm. in, in the United States is both those languages are the opposite direction of the culture you're having to navigate. Mm-hmm. But like you said, also the, um, the fact that you, at least biologically speaking, are becoming a, a woman at the very time when geographically speaking, you're the farthest from your mother seems like the ultimate backwards moment. Yeah, it's exactly right. When I when I think about just how sort of traumatized and dissociated I was around the time that I that I realized what becoming a, a woman is, you know, and I talk about that uh, when I talk about the Carrie movie moment, um, where and the unspeakable Kathy Acker uh, parts that I evoke. I, I think I just went into some sort of like a, a trench. Like I think that's why I also evoke war a lot because it it like I was like shell shocked by my own body in so many ways. And so writing this book was undoing that erasure. That's like the other backwardness, you know, um, that invisible ink kind of putting you know the match to it and seeing that it's it's in brown. <laughs> well, if we, if we were to look at the the plot of your childhood in the most yeah. generic and exterior way that your mother's life was deeply shaped by alcoholism, that she was largely absent, that you were neglected, Mm -hmm. that you were often put in unsafe situations, and that your dad successfully petitioned for custody and took you to the States hoping that you would never look back. One might imagine not knowing more of the specifics and not knowing you that this book would be a book that either expressed your anger and rage towards your mother mm-hmm. or worked through your anger and rage towards your mother. But that really couldn't be farther from the truth <laughs> of what this book is. And you've said in interviews, I will not trash my mother. And But Mother Winter doesn't just not trash your mother, but in a sense, it feels like it's it invokes or conjures your mother. Um, so I wanted you to talk about subverting maybe a reflexive cultural expectation where the dad would be praised for showing up as a parent, right? Um, being dependable as one. And instead of focusing on the ways your mother fell short as a mother, you, you looking at the impossible situations mothers are put in in general. Right. Perfect. And I could not have done 
that twist or that turn, I don't think, until motherhood brought me to my knees. And again, this is not to say that, you know, the biological imperative or having children rescues anybody from anything. I would never, ever uh, say that. And in fact, I envy and, and love and support people who don't have children in a lot of ways to me. And I say this in the book, it felt like this choice, not choice. I was already sort of a parent at the age of eight when I started to realize that I have a lot of responsibilities. And because I've lived my whole life this way, way. It felt like I wanted to at least see that in the flesh. Like I wanted to actually live it rather than be the little servant of my of my dad or to be the people pleaser with um, with no one to really raise to be to be different than that. And so it's sort of like a two pronged thing. I think the way that I write about my mother, sort of the way I think about the Wailing Wall. I don't know if you've been to the, have you mm-hmm. been to the Wailing Wall? Yes. So have I. Um, it was, I mean, the women's side looks really different. The men's side is so big and there's like a party. Um, the ladies' side is very sad. But, you know, when you're done um, davening, when you're done praying, you're done putting your, your, your wish in there with all the other wishes and you're kind of staying there. There's nothing else to do but to look at just the brick upon brick and the paper upon paper. And in a way, that's like, that's what I wanted to evoke about my mother. I just, I, I wanted to sort of say that um, I'm at her wailing wall for the rest of my life, you know, just the same way that anybody goes to that wailing wall. And um, the not trashing her comes from this idea that I, I myself could be trashed for the kind of mother that I am. Like, it's a miracle every day that I don't leave. Um, Claire Ditter asked me, she said, why why do i think that women who kill their children are are perceived as less dangerous or hated less than women who leave who abandon their children and i would say that about most relationships um, so when a woman opts out and I don't quite have the answer for it, it's, it's, you know, the one thing is like, if a woman is psychotic or is sick, or if it was a, a one-time thing, or she was driven mad, we can kind of accept that. But if a woman, because society has held her in contempt for so long, just, you know, looked at this being that's an extension of her and said, I can't, I can't even stay around to look at more of myself and she opts out whether it's um through through alcohol through starting a new relationship whatever that is we will never forgive her society will never forgive her and i wanted to start in a different place with my mother where i have complete and utter empathy for her um as a sick person who was never given help um as a woman with a lot of pressure on her and my father was not you know he was an intense violent man he's like a he's like a a man in drag you know he's like this this drag queen of like a, of a masculine man who's like oh, has a lot of intense feminine features but then acts like a man and um you know expects like all of this uh fiery emotionality and like wants to talk about everything constantly at nauseum and yet has all the power and control and um is oppressive and violent. Well, you you describe your mother as a mythical beached mermaid swimming home from the bar in the dark. And the book opens with an epigraph from Marguerite de Ross that says, when a woman drinks, it's as if an animal were drinking or a child. Alcoholism is scandalous in a woman and a female alcoholic is rare, a serious matter. It's a slur on the divine in our nature. And just pages later, you mention how the 
few photos you have of Elena, your mother, how they look like Duras on the cover of her book, The Lover, which Mm -hmm. makes us flip back to the cover of of Mother Winter and and look at your mother on the cover also. So talk to us about why you wanted to open the book first with the epigraph shortly after to make us twin the photograph on the cover with Duras, uh, which also feels part of this opening, not just the twinning of, um, of what direction language is moving Mm-hmm. And what direction are you moving in relationship to your mother? Um, but also that Duras feels like perhaps the first of many other mothers. Right. And I and I talk about that sort of collectivized voice that I'm looking for. Um, I'll say that uh, part of the reason it was even harder for me to evoke a mother or uh, – I mean there's so few – um, examples of motherlessness in, in literature to begin with. And Duras is someone that I was obsessed with from the beginning. I mean, The Lover was the book that I wish that, I mean, the same thing happened to I Love Dick. Those are the books that I read that I said to myself, oh God, I wish I wrote that. And so that was really important to me because I couldn't look at my mother ever and say like, God, I wish I could be like you. <laughs> there was no stage or step in her life except that, you know, the few times that I've seen her just be like hilarious and, and irreverent and um she was uh, the thing that I admired about her most, I guess, even in leaving me, even at the expense of, of our of our bond, is that she was rebellious. Um, but in terms of Dura, I mean, like she was a drunk mother herself. She wasn't a good, palatable, easy woman. And she was a genius. Um, and they do resemble each other. I mean, like if you look at the original cover of The Lover and if you look at this one picture that I have of my mother, it's it's uncanny. Um, and so I, because the book deals with the occult and coincidences and coincidences that we evoke ourselves, maybe like our, our own energy is just looking for for all the ways that we're fractured for those bones to mend in any way. And all the women in the book are, are the glue. Um, and so Duras is just one of the pieces of that puzzle. Can we hear the opening to the book? So this is chapter one of Mother Winter. Russian sentences begin backward. When I learned English well enough to love it, I realized my inner tongue was running in the wrong direction, as does the Old Testament the one we don't call the good book, the one that became the bad, forbidden book and is read back to front. The period blood came right after I began practicing my American accent in eighth grade, all smudged red clots to brown waste. I've been teaching my daughter to wipe herself front to back to avoid the chronic infections her body is prone to. She squats and glares at me, then follows her instinct for revolt, no matter the aftermath. The daughters who live in flashbacks will suspend their tongues between the origin and the destination, the past more immediate, more urgent than any new day. Mother, loosen my tongue or adorn me with a lighter burden. Even Audre Lorde needs her mother's permission to grease the gears on the train to the beginning, to knock on coffins. I worship the flaneurs and flaneuses, those who stroll about the city, especially the women who dare to walk alone at night and then write about it. But those who slink around with too little purpose or not enough clothing to cover their bodies are marked as streetwalkers or schluches. This was one of your labels in my home. There may be no records beyond arrests or death certificates of a schluches gallivanting. 
I don't worship my real mother, but I can't get her buttermilk smell off my mouth. Almost all of the paper that contains your name was flushed down the toilet, lost, thrown away, or hidden like a lover who buries her face in the pillow when coming. All the letters I secretly wrote you were in English, and if I knew where to send them, you would have needed an auxiliary, a translator to convert my scribbles into our mother tongue. I didn't bother practicing my Russian on you. That river was dammed with teenage hormones and hopes of fitting in a changeling in America. There was no address in Russia to mail anything to, and then I only knew you by your maiden name, Danilova, as well as the married and divorced from name we shared at one time, Shalmiva. I heard rumors that you had remarried and divorced twice since my father took you to court and the judge ruled you an unfit mother in the early 1980s. My uncle visited you in 1995 before he joined us on a visa in Brooklyn. But I only found out about these cordial gatherings a few years ago. At the time, you sat in your St. Petersburg apartment looking frail and famished, close to our old place on Bronitska, in what used to be Leningrad. I was a junior deciding between Reed and Evergreen Colleges, editing a high school feminist newspaper, listening to riot girl bands, writing poems for you, and auditioning surrogate mothers for myself. Feminists, writers, activists, painters, ballbusters, killjoys, sex workers, gay men. And so I assembled a fantasy caretaker army of mostly loose and tragic women mixed with audacious and assertive ones. A hologram of what I imagined you would be like if I hadn't been stolen from you. If you hadn't left me for the bottle long before my father took me away to America, 11 years your daughter. Elena, mother, mama, you... I choose you. We've been listening to Sophia Shamayev read from Mother Winter. The idea of, of the fantasy composite caretaker made of these different brilliant and tragic women feels sort of like the, an ars poetica in a way mm-hmm. uh, for the book. Um, it, it also is sort of a nod to how this memoir isn't conventional in, in, in the sense that the book is either writing into a gap or an absence or writing from a gap or an absence and from a silence because your dad and your stepmother refused to talk about your mom or facilitate ways for you to get information about your mom. And I love the way that you've, you sort of make the, the process of making the book part of the book itself. (laughs) So you're both trying to construct a fantasy or maybe fantasy is not the right word, but an imaginative composite caretaker. But we're, but you're also meditating on the construction of the book as the way to do it. And it reminded me of a quote by Duras where she said, when the past is recaptured by the imagination, breath is put back into life. So I was hoping you could talk about the process of writing this which seems to be as much a process of imagination as it is of of memory, or maybe it's even more of a process of imagination than memory. Yeah. I I mean, it's it's hard for me to really call this book a memoir. Um, And I I really hope that I don't sound like a jerk um, or or, or like I'm I'm distancing myself from, um, you know, women by memoirs more um, and and women, I guess, write more memoirs. Uh, So I I don't want to do that. I I don't want to disparage the whole genre, but I just don't really relate to that catch-all for this particular book because I really thought of my 
of my mother as a character that I wanted to evoke, and I wanted the the assembly line it to be seen as well. Like I wanted all the nuts and bolts on the table. The reason for that, the reason that I, it's so meta and I talk about the construction while I'm constructing the thing is because I've been so heavily tortured with stonewalling my whole life. Um, this, this idea that, you know, and I talked about this before, it's like, I don't crave suspense. If there's a book or a movie that I could pick up where they tell me how it ends right from the start, I would love that. I, I cannot handle – my body actually cannot handle the suspense. I don't enjoy a typical arc. I don't enjoy a, a chase scene. It's just not – my life has been one giant chase scene for this woman um, and having having had to ask for her at all times and – uh, given zero answers from people who love me has really taught me how to tolerate the void and then obviously right from that void and into that void. And so what I would do is I would just sort of corral my obsessions and I would feed them into that incinerator, that that anxiety, that fear, that worry when you ask somebody, well, you know, did she love me or what did she look like or did she ask after me? And then years go by and somebody gives you like a tiny little crumb of a story like, oh, yeah, she came over and like asked for your pictures and your, your mind just kind of, you know, goes into um, – a, a dark place. You start to think how how you're controlled, how you're already controlled as a woman in this world, in this society. You know, um, you know. By the time I walk down the street and I I see um, on on the way to Chapman all the people who are protesting abortions on the corner of Twenty Fifth and Lovejoy. You know, flip them off to having a conversation with a guy that all he wants to do is just have an argument that he wants to win. I mean, I have so many interactions in my day where I feel negated, nullified, like there's some sort of a, a fight that I don't really want to have that by the time I was writing this book, I just thought – I just want to be in this place with her. That's why I ended with I Choose You. I wanted to let the reader know that I just want to let my mother know how obsessed I am with her, yet I don't really expect anything of her back the way that society is constantly you know, obsessed with what women are doing and controlling them and want all of these caretaking qualities from them. Like a useless woman is the worst kind of woman. Um, and so I was kind of writing through that and, and the means of production on the page were very important to that process to me. Well, I wanted to ask more about um, what you've already alluded to and you've partially answered this question, but you've said in other interviews that you wanted this book to be autofiction. So a book that would trouble the line between fiction and nonfiction yeah. would be largely autobiographical but you'd be you'd have the tools of of self-consciousness and exaggeration and playfulness that fiction might afford that a memoir wouldn't necessarily afford yeah. and your editors were interested in the book being a memoir and i wondered which you've are you've already nodded to but i did wonder did you come around to seeing it as more memoir was did it get edited toward memoir um mm -hmm. Or did you feel like it was more a capitulation regarding art meeting the marketplace, essentially? Yeah, I think I, I fought as hard as I could to make it as strange as I possibly could. And yet I uh, deep down inside, e even though I seem 
and I am a ball buster. I really want to play ball and I'm a people pleaser and I, and I fear, um, retaliation and I, and I fear, you know, rejection and humiliation. Of course, like I was not going to be the difficult person who says, oh my God, you've accepted this as, as memoir. And now I've written a bunch of strange things that would not pass legal or are, are too fantastical. And so, no, I'm going to, I'm going to keep them in and fight with you. And in fact, I, I sort of, the strategy that I employed with, with editing this book or, or cause the book had a lot of rewrites. It had, it's, this book had had so many versions to it. Um, but in the end, the thing that was most interesting to me was actually rather than having like a Freudian relationship with writing it or, or, or being in the world or being with my editor, which is, you know, the premise is that um, our defenses are around like our sexual and aggressive drives, right? I didn't want to see it that way. I wanted to see it from, again, this like very object relations way. I wanted to see how can I actually connect? What is this person trying to tell me? So when they're cutting 40 pages and saying this might be garbage or this doesn't really work or, you know, expand, give us more story. I said to myself, what do I have to lose why don't I just try it I just want to be in the room making art and there will be other books where I'll get to do other things and I keep thinking about what Eileen Miles has said and they say that well and and, and they get to do whatever they want you know Chelsea Girls uh, random essays strung together called a novel right and 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 Eileen has also told me that that was really convenient for her mother because the mother got to got to participate in this form of erasure. Oh, my daughter, crazy artist. It's a novel. It's all fiction. My father and I agreed that this is a novel also, by the way. That's his interpretation of the book. It's a novel. It's ramblings of a of a little girl who invented a bunch of things because she cannot possibly remember the truth. And I'm okay with that because just in passing legal and having to ask his permission to say, you know, that he fractured my back was incredibly traumatic to begin with. But in terms of the art, I think it was really, really fun to just say, forget it. Like, I'm not going to put a bunch of fiction in here. I'm going to go a little bit uh, this way and I'm going to probe what you can do with nonfiction, but I'm going to stay with whatever the memory or the facts are just for the sake of building up that muscle in myself, even though it was so fun for me to write some of these other chapters that I had. Yeah. Well, you, you, you've mentioned a couple times legal, and I'm assuming yeah. that the legal is something that's the product of shifting it from novel to memoir for, into nonfiction. And you've you've described the fact checking as humiliating. Yes. Can can you? Would you be willing for <laughs> for the writers and artists who are listening yeah. to just talk about how you get this? You get the pressure to to move the autofiction into memoir and that has cons- real world world consequences that then have real world consequences for you and the people portrayed in the book. So what what was humiliating about the fact checking and what did the fact checking look like as 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 you you took on the mantle of memoir and nonfiction? Yeah. This is such a great question and I and I hope in terms of and I don't really like the word craft but okay in terms of you know craft questions the behind the scenes questions I think it's important. Um first things first I had no idea when I uh, submitted the book or, or or when Simon Schuster accepted the book that there was even such a, a a part of the process and I don't know if if it's withheld because they don't want to um you know, give you writer's block or, or make you worry 
just put it all on the page and we'll deal with it later. Maybe that's a good strategy. But to me, it felt like yet another place where I'm already writing parts of this book in spare, um, clipped, condensed language in any part where I talk about abuse in order to, and, and I hope this comes off for the reader, it's it's a device I use specifically to explain how women are never believed. Um, even I myself have so much internalized misogyny that sometimes, you know, uh, Penny Arcade was talking about this. She's like, oh, yeah, you know, in, in the current feminist movement, when I tell people I've been raped five times, they're like, what? So so I talk about abuse in in as though I'm talking to a judge or an officer and I'm just retelling it as best as I can so that I don't get in trouble, so I don't seem like a liar. So when the book was done and finished and I was told that there's going to be a lawyer combing through for anything that's potentially litigious that somebody uh, could sue me for libel for, which is very difficult to do. Like how can you prove that my back wasn't actually fractured, right? It's hearsay. But when that happened and I was and, and I got that piece of paper um, with all all of the highlighted things and that I had to call or email to get the consent of the people. So I had to call an ex-boyfriend whom I do not mention by name. And yet this could be troublesome to ask this person if I could at least retell that story. Um, and the worst of it was obviously with my father. Um, and, you know, I stood outside uh, OBT where my daughter was at her ballet practice and just paced back and forth and went over every single thing with my father in in such a state of humiliation because to th if you really think about it, we do not protect the artist in any way. If an artist has to supposedly tell the truth, which we're all like, bravo, like she's such a – how brave. I mean these words are just – they're also so demeaning. It's like thoughts and prayers, you know. Um, so the person tells this truth and we have this narrative hunger and we, we know that we're going to sensationalize the person just like we do with every single trauma story in the news. We're like, oh my god, how could this happen? Next story. And then she's in the trash chute and she's revealed herself and maybe she was important for five minutes. But, you know, we're on to the next uh, a traumatic, dramatic scene. It's all sort of like this inquirer thing. So once an artist does that and then they have to ask permission from their abuser to then put these things out there and then change them after the abuser says that they don't agree with something or take parts out of it. I, I'm just shocked by the fact that this is even a reality and that nobody talks about it. And why would anybody want to write under memoir then i don't like i actually do not the mind boggles <laughs> and i've heard other people like you know the most popular um memoir right now i think is you know like educated i mean she mm -hmm. said that she took a lot of stuff out specifically because she was like well if only me and the person that i'm accusing of something were in the room together and nobody else i took it out because i just simply could not get sued think about that graveyard of unsaid things that are not just important artistically to the story but just are important to our dialogue as people i'd like for you to also maybe unpack a little bit more the the double bind of of wanting to reject memoir but not wanting to reject memoir right could could we talk a little bit more about that because you also mentioned that when you were at Powell's doing your reading with Lainey Zumas, that as you've said, more women read memoir. Um, but it's also, I don't know if it's policed as such, but it feels like I wonder about uh, the way women get associated, their writing gets considered confessional yeah. versus a man's writing and maybe more likely get shunted into this 
category of mm-hmm. memoir than others. Is that part of the resistance also to yeah. not wanting to be in, in memoir? Yes. I, in, in even the way that this book is cataloged, I have a friend who is, um, a librarian and they keep sending me all this stuff being like, I don't even understand how library of Congress categorized your book. Like it actually makes zero sense. You're like in the weeds somewhere as like under, um, uh, like in Oregon, uh, immigrants writing about refugees, like the category, even the way that you're cataloged is like, you can't be found. Um, so I think that the way that that works is like, we create this crazy chasm of super successful memoirs that have, um, the aspirational story, which my book does not have, you know, like I'm not Oprah, nobody gets a car. And I think that if I tell you right off the bat, that there is just, I don't have the pathos for you. I don't have any cookies or candy for you. It's sort of, and as a woman, like, right. If I don't have anything helpful for you in that way, where, where there is not like redemption in the end. Um, and I'm not trying to teach you something. And it's just like clearly a a very weird jagged story about untellability and the inconsolable nature of, of grief and, and being a, a girl who's constantly abused in this world. So with a novel, right, like Norman Mailer gets to, um, you know, kill his wife, sodomize whoever he wants to and and sort of say like, okay, this is a novel. This is me, not me. Knausgaard gets to drive his a wife crazy while she begs him to stop writing about her and he's just like you know sitting around writing his diaries he gets to call it a novel i think that that's what happens to chris too she's like no i'm I'm writing satire i love dick isn't like a verbatim a thing that happened and yet people continue to believe it and you know the joke's on them but i don't want to reject memoir because rather than to say that um, you know, that, that girl over there is a, a slut. Like I'm not a slut. Like I'm a good girl. I'm going to say whatever the lowest rung on the totem pole woman is out there or whatever lowest rung thing to be in literature is, I want to be with those people. Mm-hmm. Like those are going to be my people forever. So long as we keep desecrating just, um, and ghettoizing, um, women's writing. Uh, you know, I mentioned this, that I got asked how I feel about, um, mm, the idea of momoir, um, that there is such a thing. And I had no idea that there's an industry word called momoir. And so it's like moms who write memoir. So I don't know what dads who write memoir is. I don't know if there's fathmar. I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. But I do love the questions because I think it's very important. And, you know, Kate Millett talks about this a lot too. She's like, I'm glad that Henry Miller is such a prick and, and so misogynistic out loud. I'm I'm glad, like, Jermaine Greer says the same thing, too, right? Like, I'm glad that Norman Mailer is so awful, because they are giving us just but a tiny taste of what they all really think of us. And I believe it. I really believe that that kind of aggression is real. Like, they just really do want you to go shut up. I want to ask you about a phenomenon that I've witnessed that's okay. maybe about policing memoir, too. Okay. I mean, obviously, just like there are these men who are revealing what they really think in, in these in these works. There's obviously a ton of sexist reviews by men. They're commonplace and innumerable. But with certain memoirs written by women that I feel like are working to subvert the memoir genre from within, I've seen some unusually vicious reviews by other women Yeah, um, that feel so charged that 
I feel like I learn more about the reviewer than the reviewed. Are you talking about the New York Times review? Well, I want to, but I wanted yeah. to lead up to it sure. because I think first I think of several takedowns of Kate Sambreno's heroines. And more recently in my discussion with Sheila Hetty about some high profile responses to her book, Motherhood, um, Lainey Zumas had cataloged the way the reviewer in the New Yorker was labeling uh, Sheila Hetty's narrator as petulant, bratty, self-indulgent, throwing a sort of tantrum, acting like a baby, stamping her foot in various points in that review. And with Zumas concluding that wittingly or not, the reviewer was propagating the tired cliche that a childless woman never grows. And so you yourself have been in a similar high profile critical response, which was strange on a whole, on a whole bunch of levels. It was Alexandra Fuller in the New York times. And she wrote a piece called the examine life may be more worth living. Reading about it is another matter, but for some reason she chooses to group three women, mm-hmm. all who've written memoirs together as one review. And I wondered about the, whether it's coincidence that she took, um, three memoirs by women and reviewed them together. Um, but then variably trashed all, all three to different degrees. But then there was this response by Zoe Bossier who wrote, um, contrary to what Fuller says, nonfiction and especially memoir does not have to be quote unquote inspiring or quote unquote reach beyond itself to any great or meaningful extent. And later she says, similar to what you just said, the only real difference I can see between their books, meaning yours and the two others that were reviewed, and the other memoirs Fuller mentions is that David Sedaris and Carl Ova Knausgaard are men. So I guess I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on why memoirs like yours that sit less comfortably and conventionally within the metrics of memoir and might be foregrounding I think like Hetty and Sambreno, um, feminist questions, why these might provoke that sort of response Mm -hmm. where I feel like I learned, I don't know that I could say what your book was about in that review, but I could (laughs) say a lot about what Fuller was thinking Mm -hmm. sort of in a more free floating abstract way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and the one thing that really upset me about it is that to align yourself with patriarchal thinking to such a degree that women are magical saviors. Um, they, they just are, are perfect and come clean and they're fantastic mothers and they teach us everything. They're like, they're good nurses. They're good teachers. She, she starts out with, um, with saying that something has to either be a beach read escapist book, if it's a true life book, or it has to have that pithy, my life has changed moment in it. And that is just not true on so many levels. And I cannot think of another review that has ever said something like that. And the three books that are put together, I'm only assuming, again, I, I, it's the whole, the whole mechanisms you know, of the enterprise elude me, but I'm assuming an editor put together those three books somehow for whatever reason and sent them to her in her hut in, um, in her yurt, um, out there, I believe in Jackson hole. And, you know, she describes reading them and being very disappointed with them and that's totally fine. But yeah, the, the viciousness, it sort of felt like she was also using me and, um, 
uh, Zaman has like bodies to step over to really like get to to Pam Houston. Like she saved like the the best for last in that way. Like she like really went for her and said that uh, this is a useless book from the first page to the last in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, the review was so outlandishly misogynistic that you know I I should just say oh I don't care. Like it just sucks that like the only review my dad ever read had to be that one, and he's called a dark abusive father. Like oh my god. Are we really reducing him to that? And I, he didn't quite get the dark part. He wasn't sure if it was, a, you know, because he's brown, if that was his skin color or what. And to be called abusive in the New York Times like that, well, I paint an extremely nuanced portrait of him. You do. Um, and I, I love him to this day, and we have the best relationship we've ever had. And those things are actually irrelevant. So then I started to think about that. I was like, my life. This is what really bothered me about uh, even like the sexist art on there of of the faceless woman with a looking glass up to her to her blurred face and like the mosaic uh, of red spiraling out of her heart is I am not like bleeding on the page like the me you see at karaoke or the me you see caring for my children even though like this is my energy isn't me who sits down with this book like I'm not I I love auto like automatic writing and it's fine to vomit on the page but I mean I rewrote this thing five times to make sure that every character in here is seen as a, a complicated complex character and so for her to sort of say that she uh, had a distaste for my sort of punk rock rah rah feminism the thing that I that I mean everything about it was horrible and it sucks because I'm like I'm. I'm so like the letter before type A. I'm so hard on myself. Um, I think I've replaced motherlessness with and, and, you know, obviously like being a New York Jew too, where like I will emotionally cut myself over saying the wrong word to somebody for like for days. Right. And so for her to like point out the typo, the one, the metaphor that she didn't understand actually does work, but that she pointed out that typo um, made me feel again, like that stupid, dumb immigrant girl who is in gym class and is just learning English by watching married with children and like the bionic woman in the Simpsons and tells you know the girl in in the gym class who didn't jump the horse well enough like don't have a cow man like I just felt like that like outsider idiot yet again like oh my god like she really blasted me um and obviously it's ungenerous to like take a debut writer and just say that they are well an illiterate cunt really and that she hated my brand of feminism. I wouldn't call my brand of feminism like dumb, raw, raw feminism. Like maybe if I'm the cheerleader or the glam squad for feminism, that's fine. But I think my feminism is like extremely inclusive and punk rock and does not relate maybe to her version of feminism. Right. Well, it made me think of uh, Chris Krauss' quote that you quoted in one of your essays about her where she she says, why does everybody think that women are debasing themselves when we expose the conditions of our own debasement, it felt like that question was sort of operating there, yeah, in some way. Yeah. But let but let's re, let's return to the book. Sure, Mother, let's Mother Winter. <laughs> um, so Margaret de Ross is just the first of many women that make up this composite. Yes, um, and many of these other women get twinned with a memory or a pivotal moment in your life. So, for instance, Bernadette Mayer, the release of her book, The Desires of mothers to please others in letters is twinned in your memory with your mother begging for your address to be able to write you, which she never gets. But the various women that appear and that you contemplate are not all of the same type. Um, we get uh, Dorothy Richardson, the 
criminally neglected modernist innovator as sort of the patron saint. You call her the patron saint of women on the hunt for adventure. We encounter you learning to lose your Russian accent by studying the diction of the bionic woman on television. We get Sontag, who, unlike your mother, purposefully chooses not to raise her son so that she can focus on her art. Mm. Uh, And we get Safo, who evokes mother as absence uh, and gap and fragment. So I was hoping maybe you could read a short section on Safo for us. Yeah. It is rumored that Safo had only one child, a daughter who was also dark like her. Somewhere among us, there may be Safo descendants, but they have to invent her face, her clothes, her hair, and the lines of her body based on composites of the dress fashion of the times or how she was described centuries later by male poets and scholars who admired her but never met her. The recently discovered papyrus of Sappho fragments have finally given us more to analyze, assemble, and catalog, but we will always want more fossils. The incomplete has a lifelong contract with our attention span, reminding us of our penchant for endings that create a resolution, our need for excavation of beginnings, our insistence on linearity, our demand for clues of orderliness. Sappho's poems were once shredded and used as stuffing in mummified royal crocodile carcasses. When found, every bit was poured over with magnifying glasses. Scholars, classicists, archivists, and translators standing around photographs of the ruined text piecing together the elusive message of the woman described as a dark little sparrow. No genuine picture or painting exists of the corporeal Sappho. The Christians burned her books proclaiming her a slut. Everything we know about Sappho's familial history or sex life is feminist academic gossip. Say the word liar out loud. Ann Carson chose to translate the gaps in her version of Sappho by using brackets. There was a claw-like space to point to the loss to excite the reader into the potent and excruciating task of wagering bets, of hallucinating a breathing image within a ripped hole. Bitter words of a love that cannot be mirrored back, a remote love, a dangerously potent love, direct and unwavering in the blank erased stanzas. A lone line has to signify so much more than its original intention of a larger lyric, the twenty letters left behind infused and made orgasmic with a meaning that could never be understood. There could be no periods at the end of Sappho translations because she is forever unfinished business to us. And I'll say that they let me take the the um, period out of that sentence. Oh, I don't wow. know if and anybody even noticed that there's no period at yeah. the end of that sentence. And that seemed maybe a little uh, bougie or pretentious, you know, but I, it, it was important to me. Yeah. In my conversation with Carmen Maria Machado, mm-hmm. we talk about a book by Joanna Russ called How to Suppress Women's Writing. And there's an article written about this book by Britt Mandelo. She's writing about the importance of Joanna Russ's endnotes and citations in this book, How to Suppress Women's Writings. And she says, the history of women writers as friends, as colleagues, as individuals, as a group is written on sand. Each generation feels that they're the first. Feminist history is in a state of perpetual erasure. But Russ creates a history and a set of possibilities not written in sand. 
again through these these endnotes and citations. So I kind of wondered. I, I wanted to hear. This this is something that I assumed that these different women that we get from Safo and Bernadette Mayer and Marguerite Duras and Chris Krauss and Kathy Acker um, are not just a construction of a surrogate mother, but they also sort of feel like a a map or a toolbox or mm-hmm. breadcrumbs for <laughs> future readers. Like I feel like like in a way that I would love an album when I was a kid and I would read the liner notes and find out who they were influenced by. And then I would go listen to who that person was. Is, was that intended to sort of create a, um, a map or a lineage? Yeah. The idea and, and, um, the per- person who was like kind of my first reader, you know, Lainey Zumas, and we both know and, and, um, care for her writing and her as a person very much. And she's incredibly generous and um, s- incredible uh, artist in her own right. We uh, talking about um, this lineage, this like sleeve, this um, constructing the scaffolding at all times, you know, and thinking about our writing, not in terms of solipsism ever, again, in that object relations way. Um, I f- certainly I w- was not using illusions just to be like, look at all this stuff I know. But um, it was both. It was, it was two things that were happening at once. The idea of um, the good breast and the bad breast. I don't know if you know this concept, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea that like the the I am I am the frustrated baby that I expect my mother to just give me the boob and satisfy me at every time hasn't happened. And so then fine, okay, she's the bad breast and I get the good breast from all these other women uh, as as twinning. And then at some point I wanted the book to feel like that resolution, that that ambiguity, that um, that you could be both at once, that there isn't such a split anymore. And part of the reason I was doing that is because women forever have had to pretend that we're in it alone. Uh, we had to be stoic and and brave, lest we seem like crybabies. Um, nobody's going to believe us anyways. We're always just complaining. We're shrews. We're nags. We're witches, right? Um, uh, Frederici talks a lot about uh, witches and the idea of, of gossip. And um, that that was like – this was sort of like – uh, even when I say like academic f- feminist gossip, like I say that in a very positive way. I, I I think that us sharing information and us creating these puzzles that never end together, us taking back the erasure is very important. And it makes me think again of Eileen Miles, obviously a genius, who were talking about this. Um, they said, you know what? We're actually all motherless. It's, it's a crazy concept that blew my mind, which is so true. And they didn't say much more about that. Uh, I did the work on my own for what that meant to me and for what that meant to me. And the reason that I'm writing all these crumbs, all these pathways into this is because as motherless beings, we're not just robbed of our history. Like we're told that Emily Dickinson kept her head down and was really just a sweet little lady who never wanted to be published. That is not true. She was a hungry beast who wanted to be seen and known and she wanted her stuff published and she submitted 900 zillion times and nobody cared, right? So it's like we're told these lies about the woman who is just, yeah, she's just okay, you know, toiling away in the wee hours. Um, and so the motherlessness comes from the fact that our own mothers were robbed of fully 
formed beings as mothers. And that happened for so long, generationally, and our ambition has been taken from us, or we've been punished for our ambition for so long, that none of us, even when we had a present, loving, supportive mother, actually have a human with us. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We just have like a vessel that has been suppressed generationally. Um, And so I wanted to write into that loss. I just wanted to say that we're, we are this collective voice together. And and every, I wish I could include more, but I can only do them in terms of coincidence incidences in that good breast, bad breast twinning. I love that you call Dickinson a hungry beast. That's probably the first time. Hopefully not the last. She was she was enraged for a lot of her life. She was not a nice lady. And she was also very much obsessed with her sister, which is uh, makes me think of, of my book in a way that that line where I say in the beginning that um, I compare thinking about my mother um, as though a person is, is coming and hiding their face in the pillow. That was supposed to be taken out because – on first reading from my editor and otherwise people were like, you cannot compare sex with longing for your mother. And I was like, yes, I can. Libidinal discharge and a want for the first love object are the same thing. It's not gross. It's not dirty, but it seemed incongruent to people. And I said, how disconnected are we from where we came from if we cannot combine the two? And if I'm going to write about a woman whom I've seen get raped, but I cannot say that my own relationship to sex is, um, you know, like mitigated and thwarted by her, then what can I say? Right. And, and Dickinson being obsessed with her sister was taken out of the after she died. That was taken out of her text. Her sister's name was actually taken out of her poems because they were like, ooh, what? You're having sexual feelings towards your sister? Oh, wow. Yeah, that happened. Holy yeah. moly. Okay, yeah. you hear it here first. <laughs> I don't think it's here first. I think, I think it's part of history. <laughs> well, I want to take this question of, of um, motherlessness and loss – and bring it into process a little bit. So you mentioned Roland Barthes' use of note cards. In in the writing of this book, we learn about his process. And one of the ways he's addressing the loss of his mother is in the morning diary, mm-hmm. is using these note cards that he assembles that you call the ex- excavation process of the pre-verbal made solid. And you also say his note cards were the sign of something his mother imparted to him. And you wondered what motherlessness imparted to you. Mm -hmm. And when I hear you read about Sappho as forever unfinished business, someone who has to be continually invented from her fragments and about the way you interbraid the stories of so many other women in the text, I wondered what tools you used. Mm -hmm. to do this. So do you use, like, do you have a note card box that you would collage or for instance, like Roland Barthes or what was the process for you of, of using fragments and absences, polyvocality, and your own story? Like, were there any, what were some of those tools? If you had tools that were as external and, and concrete as what Bart had. Yeah. And um, right. I talk about how, um, you know, an, an organized being is something that you get from in a way from the first love object. And I am not necessarily an organized being. I am um, a remaker of chaos. And mm, before I, I say like the exact things that I do when I write, 
which I hope are helpful to other writers or maybe not, um, I'll say that I think the way that I write is the way that my father perceives me, which is really strange because I'm trying to, my father would always say, if you're living against something, you're living under it. And I think about that all the time because I write about misogyny and everything that I do. So I live with misogyny. <laughs> constantly. Um, and I can't not write about it, but he perceives me as Athena. He perceives me as this giant headache that, you know, was like knocking at his skull and he had to rip his head off. And, you know, like the, the myth of the motherless girl who appeared in full armor. He perceives me as a fighter. He perceives me as, as I say, as like a relentless prodder. Um, and that's how I write too. I get, um, and Lainey talks about this in her love of Virginia Woolf. She said, Virginia Woolf got to subvert and and sublimate and use her perceived mental illness, her you know mania, which I don't have. I don't have mania, but I do have you know CPTSD is what I'm actually like diagnosed with. It's like complex PTSD, um, and so what that does is sometimes you have like heightened states where you're hypervigilant and everything is coming at you at once, and it seems a little bit like a hypomanic thing, but it's not. You're just you're activated. So I use those times when I'm activated to collect and generate and take down notes and they can literally be like my daughter's yelling at me to wipe her booty and my son is yelling at me because you know he dropped a bunch of peppercorns and the thing that I was teaching him to cook and I'm trying to write something on a receipt and I stick it all sort of in my bag or I look around purses and I put it in like in a Ziploc bag and I dump it on my desk when they're gone and I look through it again it's I think that that process uh, that sublimation again of of looking for and assembling and digging through garbage um, and being called garbage and my mother being called garbage and we're rescuing garbage together. That's really been important to me. So in terms of how I actually write is I write mostly in bed. I have to. Um, I <laughs> I didn't know why. Like I really because um, I hate like posturing and everything that's expected of you in the world and propriety and, you know, acting civil and all of those things just disappoint me and make me angry. Um, and so I would always try to be like, well, my writer's desk, I'm sitting at my writer's desk. And then I just be like squirmy and not having it. And it just didn't <laughs> feel right. And I was like, this is just not me. I've tried it. I've tried like people will be like, do you want to meet me at a coffee shop to write? And I'd be like, oh my God. I mean, like it, it feels like, like, um, I call the reviews that I get in involuntary pelvic exams. Well, that would be like an involuntary anal exam to sit around and write with someone. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm like sweating. I am like a monster, you know, like I don't want to be around you right now. But I do write sometimes at the Dragonfly coffee shop when I've gathered enough stuff where I'm just editing. So I need to be in bed. I got the idea from Edith Wart, uh, Wharton, who I'm obsessed with. And um, she wrote in bed in her like flannel nightgown with her like white bedding with all of her stuff and her tray and her tea. And I was like, I'm going to try that. And ever since then, I after I drop the children off, I will just get into my bed and literally lie down and either write by hand or write on my computer. I'll have all my 20 books that I'm reading at once in bed with me and I'll write until... I am juiced and exhausted and then, you know, I'll take a tiny little nap and dream about what I wrote about, maybe masturbate, maybe have a snack, maybe have some tea and then get back into the editing, seeing what I wrote, you know, from the morning. And that is kind of the process. It sounds like a pretty good one. <laughs> unique, unique and good. I want to ask about another way you organize the book, which is through engaging with folk superstitions mm -hmm. and numerology, um, superstitions from Russia, 
come up throughout the book, not always as an organizational principle, but one of the things that repeats over and over again, among others, is sort of this ruminative, magical thinking around the number four. Mm -hmm. There are four saints in the Russian Orthodox Church, the four four mothers of the Jewish religion, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. There are your four pregnancies. The the word girl is a four-letter word, the original opening to the book. And the book is also a four-part geographic structure. So Mm -hmm. talk to us about the origins of four and Mother Winter. (laughs) It's so hard to really talk about it because it's like, how do you talk about being in labor? You know, it's just, it's, it's crazy. It, it, it feels like the, the ring of fire that's trying to open up to, uh, you know, get a, a watermelon out of a, of a raisin size hole is happening to you. And that was sort of like my assembling of the number four. It was just happening and it was just coming and it was up to me to either catch it or not. Um, I started to pay attention to that and maybe the need for stability because four is such a stable number. And I say in here, in, it was in, in Hebrew school when we were, um, I, had a, I had a teacher who really took a liking to me and I think was one of the first people to realize that my mother wasn't actually Jewish and they were going to like put me through all the things so that I can have a bat mitzvah. Um, and, um, took me under her wing. She was the one to tell me that the, the word for God is really for that. It's this breathless, um, thing that you cannot actually, it's untellable. And that just stuck with me. I remember just looking at her and thinking, oh my God, that's, that's my mother. That's this thing that I, that's my ghost. It's the same thing. And then years and years and years later, I would just hear things and I would write them down. And uh, this strange map appeared in front of me. And it's not that the book wouldn't have become what it is without that, but it's just that that structure imposed itself on the book without me really even trying. It just, it seeped into the work that way. Um, just the way sometimes you don't notice that your influences are all inside of you. Like I could not stop noticing it. Well, you've also taught a class called Memoir Four Ways. So <laughs> w- what, did, what did you teach in, in Memoir Four Ways? We talked about hybridity mostly. Um, I would have just called it hybridity, but that wasn't really describing anything. We um, started from the premise of of James Baldwin saying that um, if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things that you don't see. And I think that the way to do that is by stranging language and destabilizing what ultimately the the truth is by pivoting it – um, towards just, I, I believe this narrator um, from the get, whether or not what they're saying is fictional or not. And Baldwin is like that too. That's that's really how he writes. Um, and so we learned um, about hybrid essays. We learned about prose poetry and tried to figure out what is the difference between lyric essay, prose poems, um, autofiction, right? So we, we kind of took it down those four canals and we came up with no answer. There's really no distinction. And so what we learned at the end of the class after we did a bunch of prompts is that I guess what I said to the class in the end is I wonder why in this moment in history, 
well, I would like a gender full society, not a genderless society, and I would like a genre full society, not a genreless society. And I wonder why we're putting so many capitalist constraints on writers at this time when we're probing the very idea of, of binary genders, and yet we're still living in this binary genre world. And how can we get away from that? You know, how can we support each other in getting away from that? I love that. I wanted to ask you more about, or I wanted to think more about Mother Winter as a prayer to your mother. So if we think of the four-letter unpronounceable name of God and, and that the four that mm-hmm. recurs through this book is is sort of you speaking your mother's unpronounceable name. Um, and I wanted to talk about that in, in light of the time you spent in Olympia when you were radically... Uh, where you sort of radically departed from the expectations of your family and maybe because of the geographic space of being so far away from them, maybe that was, that allowed you to, but before we talk about it, I was hoping you could read uh, two different pages that are close to each other, but they're not right after each other. And one is, is a scene uh, which is the last time you were left alone with your mother. Mm -hmm. And then shortly afterwards is, is another page where you're, sort of processing it, but you're processing it through uh, Anais Nin and and, uh, Henry Miller. Before I read from page 41, I was in Corvallis uh, with Margaret Malone and Liz Scott the other day, and I was asked, you know, how I feel about reading this book out loud, and I said that I actually don't read any of the stuff that is about sexual abuse specifically because I'm constantly worried about the the audience, and I also, if somebody's reading with me, I don't want to sort of, like, drop that, and they come on, and they're, like, talking about how they love pizza, and, like, I don't want to show them up. I don't know if that's important to anyone, but this is my first time reading this actually out loud to other people. So this is page 41. You're asleep on your side. An hour ago, it was dark in this room. Now all of the men you brought over have left. 30 minutes ago, there was light. Granny Galena bravely chased them out of her bedroom. The one guy who was passed out in the chair with his flaccid dick sticking out of his pants was slow to move. Two hours ago, he told me it was a lollipop and I should taste it. He tried to grab my head after I flipped the light switch on to check up on you. But I ducked past him and wriggled out. The other two men cradling you from each side act like they don't see me. I step over spread out legs like blackberry brambles curled up in a ditch and go call your mother on the hallway telephone. The other numbers I know to dial are 02 for the police, 03 for the ambulance, and 04 for the gas service. When the lights are on for the last time, the moaning stops, and Granny gets to work, expertly escorting out the naked assembly, much too calmly for my taste. Her elbow moves up and down in an effort to scrub your period blood off her shiny sky-blue comforter once it's just us girls again. She mumbles about you ruining her nice things and gently pushes you over to get at more of the hot pink stain. I turn out the lights. I'm never left alone with you on purpose after this night. Page 45. Some women's insides cannot betray their outsides, even though the art they made was splendid, certainly more deserving of the attention Henry Miller basked in while he took Anais Nin's money. 
As every library became my foster home and every book a coded path to grappling with the absent woman who never actually raised me, just haunted me, a book like Henry and June roasted my throat with the fear that tough and smart doesn't protect you from subservient and used up. I knew that Anais Nin was hot for Henry Miller and kept a journal about their trysts. Henry would say stuff like, you drive me crazy with passion and come here at once. It will be beautiful, I promise. Men like that, hungry, casually greedy, always landing on their feet while uttering those cliched things were all around me. I hated that the women I admired gave into a bad romance. But since Anais was the closest comparison to both damaged and regal I could find, she was therefore the embodiment of Elena on a pedestal and in the gutter of my imagination. I became very old once I saw those men having sex with her limp body. I became her mother and she my baby. Now, shaken, we were both crushed ice girls, all mixed up. I would have to learn about Elena by reading an instructional manual that didn't exist. There were no chapters in novels or essays in anthologies that could teach me to keep loving Elena through witnessing what seemed like rape, but could have been a choreographed orgy or even sex work. A choice, not choice. I've been listening to Sophia Shamayev read from Mother Winter. Well, if, to me, it felt like going to Olympia, going to the opposite coast from your dad and your stepmother might have been the necessary first step to creating your own instructional, instructional manual like you reference in this reading on your own terms. And I, I don't know if, it read, if that feels that way to mm-hmm, you, but mm-hmm. can you talk about that time period for you and also about it in relationship to the Riot Girl movement's significance? Yeah. In your life. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I would say that I, that we have a lot of, um, criticism for second and third wave feminism, but really, um, third wave feminism that raised me while I was a teenager. I mean, it raised me a fourth wave feminism, I would say raised me as as a grown woman, but, um, it was the first time that I understood that things like, you know, silence equals death and the personal is political had to do with violence and sexual trauma. To me, those were just the things that were happening to me. Um, and I didn't, exactly realize that they were happening to most every woman that I knew. When I got to to college and I started speaking to other girls and women and every single one of them said, oh yeah, I lost my virginity when that guy didn't ask me. He just took the sex or like, oh yeah, I totally have been raped. And um, I actually put that guy's name and phone number on the you know bathroom stall to warn other girls. I mean, I lit up. This is exactly what I wanted my whole life. And I got to know that such a thing even exists um, when I was 15 years old. And just by happenstance, I was one of the girls in my boyfriend's practice space where they were practicing their dumb band and all the other girlfriends were just sitting there. And I'm sure we didn't even think that this was wrong. Some of the sadder people were knitting and the people who were rebelling were like writing zines or just like writing or scribbling in their journal. And this woman, they called her Little Jen. This was like her actual nickname. Um, she gave me a mixtape and it had like Heavens to Betsy and, um, um, you know, obviously Bikini Kill and Bratmobile and, you know, PJ Harvey. It had every single band on there was a female fronted um, band or project. And I just like 
magic um, took that and swallowed it whole and based my existence on this premise that I can run away to a place where things may be imperfect and I don't know what to expect, but somehow women clawed their way to the stage and told the boys to go stand in the back for once. And so when I got to Olympia, even though it was 1996 and everybody had already in that particular town had soured um, on some of the activism because it was exploited and it was in mass media and and people were in fighting. There still was the remnants of that energy that I had gotten in high school. And we were all just making art in this collectivized way that was so energizing. Hmm. Well, also during that time, you, you were a sex worker. Yeah. Uh, You worked at a peep show. Yep. And you've talked about how, because you grew up sexually traumatized in a hypersexualized environment, um, that being in the peep show was transformative mm-hmm. that if you hadn't found the peep show, maybe you would, you would have gone in the radically opposite direction. Yeah. So I, I guess I wanted to hear more about how it was vital for you in the formation of your identity, um, as a feminist, as a woman, mm-hmm. is it related to this, the exposure to these, the stories that you thought were your own were now, um, collectivized or, or what was it? Yeah, this, well, <sighs> The other thing that's really important is that sex work obviously is very complicated and people do it or feel comfortable or feel safe doing it in in very different ways. Somebody is doing sex work because they think that the, the, um, that the man who's selling them is their um, father substitute or that's a family, right? And like to be in that, in that, tribe makes them feel loved and accepted or somebody is you know putting themselves um into an escort service because they you know they're they're doing sex work but they need some protection and there are people who are walking the street and those are the people we look down on the most like there are actual hierarchies within sex work that are disgusting and disturbing that just like sort of mirror and evoke um, misogyny, you know, like, um, the, there were girls at, at, at the, so I worked at, at Pea Plant for a minute in Times Square before, uh, Giuliani smashed it. I worked at, at Champs, which is part of Deja Vu. And I worked at the Lusty Lady and all of those places had hierarchies that were important for me to see because the girls who didn't make enough money at the end of the night and wanted to do hand jobs or went home with, with, you know, clients, Johns, whatever you want to call them, you know, it just depends on the day or who was working, but they were looked down upon or look like they were they were thwarting our money or they were like lowering the profession it was just it was so intense um and then because i worked in a peep show um because the way that that my body was processing sex work is like i could play with this dildo or like i could play with my with my girlfriend but i just could not i tried working in dance clubs and i just could not handle being touched um so the kind of i would have done any kind of sex work so long as i didn't get touched by men and so it was like this strange protective estrogen space where it was like all of us girls running around sweating and glitter i mean like my face smelled like pussy every day you know what i mean because like the the shows that the guys wanted to buy or like we would do this like really cute seat there was just so much love there just think about all the times where like you know one of my girlfriends she's like she's in a fantasy booth and like i knock on the door and i come in i'm like hey like do you want to spend more money for a two-girl show and the guy's like yeah i want to see pretend lesbians and you're like okay so like you just get down and start like eating her out and now you have like 60 bucks. 
And then the management takes a cut of that. Um, But it was a place where I learned to love women like my mother and I learned to love myself and I learned to be irrelevant and I got to get away from society and I got to grow some skin, as I say, without the constraints of being a good girl. Hmm. And and yet every guy I'd meet would be like either like strangely fetishistic about what I was doing or, or put me down or do the thing where it's like, well, I'm not like the other guys. Like, I don't care that you do this. Right. So creepy. <laughs> Well, I want to I want to ask you about a re- a review you do of Chris Krause's biography on Kathy Acker that you entitled "Kathy Acker is the Secret Mom of Every Female Artist." When I read your description of Acker, it feels like it could easily be a description of you. When you say Acker styled herself as an anti nuclear family writer. The formal structures and post-punk style she became famous for were in direct opposition to the cozy images of courtship and child-rearing. Her true home, her religion, sat on her bookshelves. She worshipped by collaging herself with each page she has ever read. Acker's was an identity full of holes in need of books to fill in her foundation to prevent the feeling of constant freefall. She cannibalized her idols birthing herself from the art she consumed like a maggot emerging from its host. And and you yourself become a mother within the narrative of the book. And you say, I wish for the reader to understand something right away. I do not believe in the biological imperative or the nurture cure. I do not think having babies with your own body is a cure for any damn thing, frankly. But you also go on to say, From very early on in life, I knew I was going to mother and mother and mother and mother. It is how I write as well as a collectivized voice, as a chorus of thoughts and foremothers. So was the choice to become a mother for you not fraught with the fears of passing on intergenerational trauma? Yeah. So true and so heavy. And I love the stuff that you just read that I say about Acker and and Acker too struggled with being too much and not finding uh, mirroring and, and solace and reciprocity in her relationships with men. And I, I, I've, I've had like a life where I've tried to mostly be with or date men unlike my father. And this is nothing to do with, I didn't choose somebody to have children with that way. I just thought, you know, like I get it. I get that like crazy, kinky, self-absorbed, you know, out there ostentatious guy. And I am going to choose, you know, whoever is like the kind, gentle, good guy. And, um, through, through consciously doing that and through giving those men in my life some space, I eventually, when I, you know, met my husband, my now ex-husband, I, um, I I fell in love with him and and felt that that urge to have children specifically with this person, not just to have children, which is totally fine. I think the the feeling of wanting to parent versus the feeling of wanting to merge with someone that urge to merge they, they could be very very different things. Um, and so what I guess I'll say about there there are two things. I am really not necessarily worried about passing down my. Uh, trauma and abuse history to my children, I say, you know, I'm the last of the four tiny matryoshka dolls, solid wooden side, because I'm conscious of the fact that the abuse stops with me, but I seep it and I ooze it. And I know that my children 
children are psychic and they and they feel that from me and they and they feel some of the agitation that comes from trauma and they feel the fact that I don't have a support system of any kind like I don't have parents to rescue me and I really don't know what that experience feels like so obviously I'm parenting from that void as well and so it's 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 a daily conscious effort to um not just to be stable, but to be to to be porous and yet protect them from what I say are the larger bits of truth until they're ready for it. Um, and so my disappointment really largely, because I'm a straight woman who has sex with straight men, and if I could do it any other way, my God, I really would. And, you know, <laughs> Melissa Feebles always, like, tweets and says, like, I wake up every day thinking, God, I don't have sex with men. And, um... I I love men, but I'm right there with her. Like, I'm actually, like, the, the original title for this book for me was Boy Crazy Sluts. I'm not kidding. I just wanted to actually, like, subvert, like, what you could title books. And that was, like, the working title in my mind. Because I have been like hysterically boy crazy my whole life. I have mothered and capitulated and done more for for hapless men than than anybody should or anybody who looks at me is like what is her deal right um but that has been sort of like i would always hit a bottom and i would be like i don't really understand why so many women have to be or parent with in a relationship with a male partner who doesn't just not do the emotional labor and the planning labor but sort of has a, like a vacancy or like a, a present absence. I call them ghost men. And I just wrote about this for Lit Hub. It's going to come out at the end of the month. Um, we're in April now. Um, about how I do not know, speaking of mothering, I do not know how to raise my boy. I, I seem to know how to raise my daughter. But I do not know how to raise my boy with what is happening with straight men in general from the, the, the torch carriers of Jews will not replace us being like, bad, bad. We know that's bad, you know, to your basic nice guy who just shows up and keeps in his pants i don't know who the role model for my son is you know like john reed and james baldwin like okay but but i think the trouble the main trouble we see the trouble with people in the media and like out there somewhat but the trouble is still in the domestic the trouble is still within our romantic and interpersonal relationships. And it's funny because Henry Miller is the one that said that a great artist is someone who controls himself as the romantic, right? And so I feel supremely controlled by how men treat us in our interpersonal relationships and how little of it we discuss or unpack or are allowed to without hurting their fragile feelings. Can can you speak to the moment of crisis that you had the both physically and psychically that – was the beginning point of this writing project, um, a crisis that you described as feeling the impossibility of parenting? Yeah. I mean, it, I didn't even think that where, as I say, where the wood met the, you know, the small of my back on my father's bed, that that would come back to me. So when I was pregnant with my first child, I first felt that compression in my lower back and I sort of ignored it and went ahead with it. And then when I had my second child, um, Franny, and I had her, um, I was pregnant when I started the MFA program at PSU and then I had her on winter break. I gave birth to her in, in December and was back in class with her in January. But before that even happened, I mean, I was just reaching for something and my back went into such spasms. I apparently tore 
tore a ligament because, um, you know, your body's so elastic and unstable. And then processing that for for a while, ever since that happened, just what I was brought low by, I think, is my inability to control the situation. And through being overly analytical, still not understanding that I had this weakness in my back. And then I was putting a lot on the structure of my spine and how that functioned psychically. And then when I broke... When my body broke and I had to be on the floor in diapers, nursing her, you know, with my son sort of like, you know, around me, he was just four. He needed attention and love, too. I did. I realized that that parenting for me, at least, is lots of crawling on my knees, you know, and getting pebbles in them. Well, I want to read another. I want to go back to Duras just for a second. I'm going to read a quote yeah. that reminded me of this moment, or at least I connected the two. I, I just want to hear your thoughts if you think it does too. So Duras said, finding yourself in a hole at the bottom of a hole in almost total solitude and discovering that only writing can save you mm-hmm. to be without the slightest subject for a book, the slightest idea for a book is to find yourself once again before a book, a vast emptiness, a possible book before nothing, before something like living, naked writing, like something terrible, terrible to overcome. I believe that the person who writes does not have any ideas for a book, that her hands are empty, her head is empty, and that all she knows of this adventure, this book is dry, naked writing, without a future, without echo, distant, with only its elementary golden rules, spelling, meaning. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is a witch. She's incredible. It, and, it, it yeah, feels like a spell. It is a spell. I yeah. am under her fictive spell. Um, I guess what she's saying is, yeah, like, <laughs> you think you hit a bottom, hit another bottom, and then the writing will come. And what it actually makes me think of is that um, when it caught... Um, concept and, and, and quote from playing in reality where he and what she's talking about here, right, is like hiding and being found um, that it's, you know, it's delicious to hide and mm-hmm. it's um, terrifying to not be found. And I guess what I want to say about that and writing and parenting, which is all that rapprochement and at times being in a relationship and writing for the public and having people then read the work is that it is delicious to hide and it's terrifying to not be found. It is, um, you continue to hide, you continue to hide and you get used to not being found. And then it's equally, if not more terrifying to be found and Mm -hmm. seen. And so I think that that's what the book really talks about. It talks about how after a lot of hiding, when when you give up and when you get used to that that hole and you that you're writing yourself in and out of to finally be seen um or to have your children sort of ask after you and who you are um and to to then have to respond to that and mirror that back is way way harder than being neglected mm. well i was hoping maybe we could have you read one more section Sure. Which uh, one? Page 221. 221. Page 221. 
Oh, before I read this, I just want to um, set the audience up to say that the the women that I discuss in this part that's coming up to me are willfully motherless and, and, and willfully selfish and willfully hungry. And that is kind of why I pick them as um, this this little tripod here. Mary Rufel, Agnes Martin and Emily Dickinson were born to worship the art only. They are born in our eyes. God knows what they really worship. Maybe it's something that's stuck in Catholic school. Maybe a tree. Maybe aisle five at the Goodwill before it gets picked over. Maybe a special kind of off-white paint and the grids it itches, etches into the brain and then the canvas. But that something is definitely the voice. Their own or God's. Or rather, the joining of the two and the ensuing dialogue mushed together like warm stool in a diaper. The kid going down the slide, arms up in the air, ready for more at the bottom. It must come. It's pleasant and scary and necessary. Rufo called her process of writing poetry having to go pee but in your brain. The room where she announced this lit up at this statement. It was wonderfully childish. She was serene and sublime. She was goofy and deadpan, naughty and nice, poignant and casual. You want to be her to be yourself. The snakeskin found on the road might give you shelter for a while until you find your own way. Here's what I know. I want to be rueful, but my son has been accidentally soiling himself at school nonstop for at least three weeks now. Leaks everywhere. He's diagnosed with incopresis. I tell my husband that the same thing happened to me when I was a child. How long did it last, he wants to know, half concerned and half unable to hear what I'm about to tell him, which is that it lasted for most of my childhood. I held it all in and then spilled it out, bit by grim youth bit. It's a disease having to go like that. It's not like having to pee very badly and it's only in your head, like for rueful, and bless the Lord, it's a poem. It's the thing that stops the poem. In Caprices trumps writing deadlines. I want to pen my own soiled dove plea in defense of that smeared girl. I break away from my writing desk again and go to the elementary school to bring my child home and shower him. He's crusty. He's embarrassed. He can't seem to stop himself. I can't write like this, not while my boy suffers. Everything smells like I'm too small to write. And in the small, there was death, the potential to be vaporized from the waist down. I think poetry is in the rectal canal. I think it's in your pelvic floor. I think it's in your sphincter. It's in your anal glands. Are you stretched out? Are you sore? Are you bleeding? Are you comfortable? Do you have to go? Do you know when it's time? Are you indeed pleased with the world down there? I would rather have a knock on my head that says, I gotta go, and out come the words, but I must hold words back. I want to say monstrous things, speeches I have heard in a stomach frightened like a body bag. I want to ask why, and can you smell yourself, and how did this happen to you? And is it because it happened to me? Chris Krause says it's all fiction. Once you type anything, once you say anything, make a speech, a show of yourself, it all becomes a made-up tale to tell, and all attempts at finding proof become scratchy recordings of gossip, multiple holograms. A poem is knowing when to go if you can. Sit up straight and deliver. A guy sits next to me, too close, even though he's far enough, at Powell's coffee shop, where I seek escape in between nursing sessions to write about conceptual art made by women. He's staring at me, staring at my piles of books. Yoko Ono's grapefruit is at the top of the pile. 
He looks like a lot of hot guys around my age who don't give a shit, who are really deep, but would laugh at that sentiment, who smoke a ton of weed, but don't seem to get that high because they're always hovering above the smoke, who look dirty because maybe they are filthy in the sack or loving in an almost too wet of a wetness when they get you into bed. Or, most likely, they make you get them into your bed because they never want to try hard at anything. They know. They must know. You're rigid and coarse and see right through them. They want the opposition for sport, but expect submission. They will tame you and find your mellow side in the end. He asks me, finally leaning in, if I'm a writer and what kind of stuff do I write? What kind of stuff do I read? I say things that I know will turn him off. I have two children, not enough time to be magical. I'm trying to get him to go away without calling the police of my siren blaring mouth in my eyes, onerous and slightly ridiculing when he says that he loves Rimbaud. Of course. He borrows my Ono book and gives it back too soon without a word. I say that I mostly like derivative and autofiction writing by women. I begin to fantasize that planes are landing and leaving from the bookstore, and he's now getting on the wings. I hallucinate his departure, my static descent. This scene here has happened to me so many times before in other coffee shops or bars or on buses or whatever public area I sit in and try to carve out my own space in the world while fearing I'm taking up too much, taking on too much. And the guy there, here, everywhere is ripping my seams open with a tiny little penknife. Can we have the envelope, please? I'm glitter spilling out. He hates the show. As I approach 40, the number of men telling me to smile, cheer up, to not look so sad is getting smaller. As my tits sag and the bags under my eyes point to my sagging tits and the glimmer in my eyes says I have been there and done it too many times already with no variation on the theme's outcome. The more my body and its language express a climb to an age, a woman losing the girl. The more this happens, the more invisible I will become to this guy and to the world that loves Rimbaud and tits and smart women writing alone in coffee shops so long as they look unavailable and disinterested and busy and tight. Above all, tight and smelling of spring. Above all, spring. I've been listening to Sophia Shalmiyev read from Mother Winter. Before before we end, I feel like something that's crucial that we should talk about is you're returning to Russia. You come to the United States, I, I think, when you're 11 years old. Yeah, we have, we leave when I'm 11. It takes us about a year to get, to here. get here, so almost 12. Yeah, and 12. then in your 20s, there is an you go back for the first time, yes, and make a failed attempt to find your mother, but you encounter a different Russia, and I was hoping maybe you could. Talk to us about that disjunction between the Russia of your childhood and the Russia you encountered and why why you've said you can't imagine going back again. Yeah, I think people like Masha Gessen do an excellent job of describing the new semi-totalitarian, hyper-capitalist oligarchy that Russia has become. Um, so it was, you know, being a, a person who... Uh, was exiled through no attempt of her own. I was just brought along. Um, I retained kind of like the best memories of the Soviet Union one could possibly have. I didn't pay much attention to the anti-Semitism. I mean, I was treated like lesser than, I mean, to the point where my third grade 
teacher, uh, when we became pioneers on Battleship Aurora, um, didn't want me in the picture because she didn't want, in Russia, rather than black sheep, you say white crow. She didn't want a white crow ruining her set. Um, I just was too dark and, and mangy and too Jewish for her. Tamara Yestafievna. Um, and, and yet, um, going back to this, to this cheap um, skinhead version of the Soviet Union, now Russia, was just another loss, another reminder of my outsider status, another in-betweenness, another place where, you know, I'm not quite American, but I could code switch enough to pass. And I'm, I'm not, I've never been necessarily Russian. I've only been Soviet. Um, and I couldn't really be Jewish when I got to the Hebrew Academy until I, I, I converted and proved myself. And the Russian Orthodoxy doesn't want me either. There are just so many places where everything is a wall. Um, so when I showed up there and people were um, vocally and outwardly anti-Semitic and unkind um, to me and, and, and vocally treated me like what they call Chernozhope. It's just a word for black ass. Um, um, mm, I think I just, I reached that limit. I, I reached that point of I, I cannot process this new Russia and, and the loss of the country that I loved under Gorbachev, which, you know, we could have had something not like what Western Europe could have ha was, um, not what America is, but we could have had our own socialist structure that was thwarted by the right wing American interventional inter interventionalism, um, and so seeing all of those puzzle pieces along with you know the bribery and not being given any information everywhere I went like going to the consulate and being just shunned um it was just too much and I didn't want to relive that humiliation ever again and 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 yet I don't know how to go back there and not look for her right how can it which am I supposed to that's what I do um that's what I explain I do in this book where when I realize that I'm getting nowhere I just sort of you know I start mastering being a submissive being and I just start pretending like I am a tour guide for my boyfriend because mm. that's less humiliating than continuing the search. Well, uh, there's a way in which this connects in my mind back to what you were saying before about how we're deconstructing the gender binary, but we're not doing it with the genre binary. But in a way, I feel like you um, put to service all of these rejections. So mm -hmm. like on the one hand, like your father in Azerbaijan was considered white. And then he comes to the Soviet Union, he's considered black. Um, you're considered Jewish and colored mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. You come to the United States, you put in a yeshiva, you're not considered Jewish. Um, there's like an identity instability that uh, you don't collapse. You sort of hold us as a reader in this place that kind of like what you wanted to do with autofiction Mm -hmm. hold us between nonfiction and fiction. We we never can quite tell who you are. What type of mother will you be? Mm -hmm. um, we get, we get you in Olympia, the peep show, we get y you raising your kids uh, um, juxtaposed. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming this is all by design, like right. an interrogation of identity of yes. what we, of the, of the things that we, quickly and reflexively want to place on you if you were to own one versus the other. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 
going back to Miles, you know, I remember um, them writing that scene in Chelsea girls of the 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 mother figure where she was kind of like part of this threesome not threesome and she was obsessed with this um woman that that she thought of like bread like was buying a lot of bread and she was this kind of mother that you know just drink a lot of beer in the morning and all these things and then um eileen when we were talking um they said God, like I, I cry. Like when you were reading, I, I cried at the at the points where you were talking about yourself, like out with your friends, drinking, coat unbuttoned, like this kind of mother that will will go the distance with your friends, will get completely blacked out, and still wake up three hours later, brush her teeth, and like make her kids a beautiful breakfast. And there's a price to pay for living like that, but I refuse to live neatly. I will live dirty. So speaking of living dirty, you're, you are now working on a full-on autofiction project yeah. like you dreamed. Yeah. Of. So tell us what inspired it or what, or what questions animate it um, yeah. and what freedoms you've, you've indulged in by working under this more flexible umbrella of autofiction genre. Yeah. This particular project, first of all, it came – because I am, I guess, a literary cannibal. It came from some of the cuts of the book. Um, some of the things that were, like, uh, didn't, like, maybe fit or were, were um, really actually multivocal because the character that I have, Grace, and that's uh, an homage to Grace Paley. Um, so so my character, Grace, um, she has a lot of dialogue in her head. The whole point of the book is I wanted to write a woman who does more thinking than she does doing. And I love Zimbreno. I love heroines. And, and that's the kind of book that, you know, s- sort of like one of the texts that I love um, where, you know, again, just like a, a woman sitting around kind of imagining things for herself. But this particular woman has has these uh, voices in her head that she um, shepherds around. Um, so Grace is an urban mother who grew up with like a very like my fantasy mother and no influence of a father on her. I wanted to write about a woman. I wanted to feel to feel in my own body through writing, what was it like just the corporeal pleasures of having been taken care of and yet throwing that all out the window as a mother yourself, like the exact, the inversion of what I'm doing, because a lot of what I do with my children in my real life and what I'm talking about in the book is I am constantly grooming them and kissing them and hugging them and holding them. Like that is the mother that I am. And that is the mother that I write in here, you know, as a reverend, as I, as I, come off. But this particular mother, you know, her kids are the smelly kids in the school. She says no a lot. Like to her, no is a complete sentence. That is not who I am at all. Mm. Um, and but similarly to me, the the um, the crux of the book or sort of like the mattress she lies on is her obsession with the impending earthquake, I believe we're going to have that's going to kill us all. Um, and it just speaks to the metaphors there um, for the rupture one feels once a relationship breaks apart. She's a woman that leaves even though she's not cheated on. She's not abused. She's not even really yelled at. She just wants to leave. She just no longer wants to be in a in a dyad of um, 
she doesn't it's not like she doesn't want to be constrained within the dyad it's just that the other person doesn't give her any mirroring and that's why she goes to the voices in her head and just kind of lives in her head and so i'm kind of moving around all parts of it um right now and you know, hearkening to Grace, maybe just plot is time is what Grace says. So I don't know exactly what the plot is yet. It's just happening. Mm-hmm. It sounds amazing. <laughs> I hope so. I can't I don't wait. Know. I don't know if it is. <laughs> Thank you for so much for being on the show today, Sophia. Thank you so much, David. You're one of my favorite thinkers and writers, and I'm so glad we went to school together. We were talking today to Sophia Shalmayev, the author of Mother Winter. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Sophia Shalmayev's work at sophiashalmayev.com. And Sophia has recorded for the bonus archive a reading from her autofiction book in progress entitled, I Married the Butcher to Get to the Bone. This reading joins supplemental material from Lainey Zumas, Marlon James, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Christine Scutt, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, It's Apetita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.